Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join me in an empty yet sunny capital. I'm Matthew O'Neill, and today, as always, we ensure that we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First, we're joined by Paul Coolings, Managing Director of Timberplay, an advisory company on the development of play spaces. Paul, hello. Hi, Matthew. Thank you for coming on the show. Um, I know it's an odd time for all of us, uh, but before we get on to leadership, we should address uh, the elephant in the room. How has COVID-19 affected your business? Yeah, it's had a big impact. Uh, I've had to uh, effectively temporarily close the business and and furlough all the workers. Uh, We can't really operate uh, at the moment. Um, We've just taken a couple of staff actually back out of furlough uh, so that we can do some work, but... uh, uh, so obviously there's a lot of disruption. It's normally the busiest time of the year for us. A lot mm. of the time we're building play areas uh, ready for the summer holidays. Um, and I think the leisure sector uh, will probably get hit very hard by this and it might uh, take quite a while for, the, for them to recover. Uh, and do you feel that this is going to have a long-term economic impact on your business or do you think things will get back to normal rather quickly? No, I think it'll have a long-term uh, impact. I think uh, it might take the leisure sector two or three years to uh, recover. And uh, I think uh, the high street will, will suffer a lot. We've been doing more and more play areas for retail uh, outlets. Um, and uh, I think uh, there's already been a big shift towards um, online buying. And I think that uh, obviously that's going to be exacerbated through the current crisis. And I just wonder if not whether or not things will return back to normal afterwards or not. Well, uh, let's move on to the subject of leadership. I always like to start the conversation off by asking a simple question, and that's what does the word leader mean to you? Um, I think um, uh, for me it's very much about leading by example um, and certainly not asking anyone to do anything I wouldn't be prepared to do myself. Um I think, except the fact that there are different leadership styles, but my style is very much about coaching and allowing people to get on with things. Uh, I look for people who enjoy work, and then my style is just to give them a bit of guidance, a bit of coaching, but really not trying to interfere too much with their work, but to allow them to be self-determined in their work. Now, how do you ensure self-determination in your workforce? Um I think uh, firstly it's about, just about stating it from the outset. It's in the company handbook to talk about self-determination and uh, what it means, about the fact that uh, there's more than one way of doing things a lot of the time. And as long as the outcome is uh, satisfactory, then uh, people are well within the right to, to be self-determined. We encourage flexible working. Um, and we, um, yeah, we're just trying to create an atmosphere, really, where people... Um, can work in the way that they want to work, um, as long as we're all working towards the general sort of direction that the company's travelling in, and uh, we try to uh, be respectful of people's different ways of working. Now, of course, everyone has a different way of working, and uh, leadership is all about dealing with people. So how do you deal with, inevitably, uh, the uh, situation of conflict? Uh, sorry, could you repeat the... the uh, human nature is as such that inevitably there will be conflict uh, amongst people. How do you resolve that within your workplace? I think uh, we sort of differentiate between sort of daily conflict, which I think is acceptable. I think it's understandable that sometimes people 
Um, sometimes get a, a bit annoyed about certain things. I think that's acceptable. I think it's fine for people to to show their annoyance. Um, but I think if it's more deep seated and if it's a long running conflict and it starts to uh, undermine what we're trying to achieve as a business, then it has to be addressed. And uh, and usually that's uh, dealt with by just speaking to people concerned, sort of trying to get them to understand um, where that conflict's coming from, the impact that it's having. Um, and, but in, uh, in in severe cases, then you know, sometimes you have to remove that person from the organisation. Now, uh, of course, uh, leadership uh, is important in all different ways. And as we all know, it doesn't come uh, out of a vacuum. Let's go back to the beginning of your career when you first started out your working life. Uh, did you have any particular uh, influences who shaped you as you are today? Um. I think um, there were uh, two people. I worked uh, for a guy called Andrew Darwin, and I think he was. Uh, I think one thing he said to me was that people just want to be treated a little bit with a little bit of respect. Um, and that's quite a simple statement, but I think it's just very true. And I think a lot of people in managerial positions don't do that. Um, um, and I just sort of always try and treat people the way I would want to be treated. And I just think it goes a long way uh, when it comes to managing employees, but also in terms of dealing with customers. Um, and then also uh, Julian Richter, uh, who is the head of the uh, manufacturing company that we represent, we're a distributor. And he's very much focused on self-determination as a kind of a life philosophy, really, and he embeds it strongly into his workplace. Uh, but it's also got strong links with children's play, uh, which is the industry which we're associated with, and uh, allowing children to be self-determination self-determined uh, in, in their play um, to help them uh, in their lives. Well, let's talk a little bit about uh, your philosophy on these um, uh, play equipment that you uh, design. Uh, what is the, the basic uh, philosophy, be, philosophy behind them? We are essentially trying to uh, design for the children, um, which might sound... Odd. You might think that most play areas uh, are designed for children, but I would argue differently. I think most play areas in the United Kingdom are actually designed uh, for adults around adult anxieties. And uh, uh, it starts out with a, a nice idea about uh, trying to create something pleasant for children. Um, but then often adult anxieties, worries about antisocial behavior, uh, um, litigation from accidents, um, vandalism, uh, dogs uh, fouling the areas. I think all of those things, which are all issues that need to be addressed, um, I think that sometimes they can lead the design of the play area in, in a way which then starts to uh, mm. impact on the um, the actual effectiveness of that play area. Of course, children might still play there, but children will play anywhere. And the point is, we're building play areas, and it doesn't cost any more. I think they should be as good as they possibly can be. Well, uh, you're absolutely right. Quite a lot of the play areas uh, that one sees these days are quite sterile. Um, I seem to remember the the most fun I had when I was a child was playing on a slide that just seemed to be nothing more than a a very slippery and shiny uh, sheet metal uh, that was about 15 feet in the air landing onto gravel pavement. Uh, And it was a grand time. But uh, you are right that there's so many anxieties in playground manufacture these days. How do you uh, avoid uh, these fears when you are proposing these designs to people? 
Um, well, we so we tried to take a, a child-led approach. Really, we tried to uh, be advocates for the children that will be using those play areas. I think it's also important to understand that uh, you also have to design for parents. I mean, this is something we've we've switched tack on a little bit in recent years, but that's because now uh, children are not typically allowed to go to play areas on their own. They have to go with parents and one of the um, upsetting sights I see quite regularly is parents dragging their children kicking and screaming out of the playground because the children don't want to leave there they've not finished playing but the parents have had enough so I think it's also to try and create a nice atmosphere in the playground uh, so the parents enjoy going there quite happy to take the children there Mm. uh, and are happy to stay there for as long as the child wants to stay there but apart from that I think it's about trying to just understanding how children play it's not that difficult really we were all children once um, um quite often designers make the mistake of trying to um decide how the children will play and that's really a nonsense children will decide for themselves how to play it Absolutely. needs to be as open-ended as possible now unfortunately our time together has drawn to its close but what does the next 12 months have in store for timber play I think we've got some major challenges, of course, with the coronavirus and the impact on the leisure sector of our industry. Um, but that will be offset, uh, we hope, quite a lot by some international expansion. We've been investing quite heavily in, invest, uh, in expanding into the Middle East and India, uh, and that's starting to show some recovery. So um, it's just an uncertain time. Um, and obviously, the um, uh, this layoff that we've had, this enforced layoff that we've had, uh, uh, doesn't help either. So we just have to react to that. Well, Paul, I'd like to wish you the best of luck in the coming months uh, and weeks uh, with this whole situation unfolding before us. And I'd love to have you back on the program when things get a bit back to normal. Uh, Paul, thank you. Thanks, Matthew. Nice speaking to you. That was Paul Coolings, Managing Director of Timberplay. And now, if you haven't heard before, is Jonathan White's exclusive interview with Sir Jeff Hurst. We're now joined, uh, though, by former England footballer and still the only man to score a hat-trick in a World Cup final, Sir Jeff Hurst. Uh, thank you very much for coming on today. Uh, You're welcome. You're welcome. Good afternoon. Uh, and perhaps I should uh, start and get it over and done with. I know you must be bored with it and uh, you've probably been asked a thousand times. But when you got out for a duck playing for Essex, uh, Jeff, what was going through your head at the time? <laughs> well, of course, that's not one of the most asked questions I get. Oh, there, there are one or two people who are very familiar um, uh, who do Google me realise that I did uh, score nothing for Essex, uh, for my only game for Essex first team when we played against Lancashire in Liverpool, a place called uh, uh, Egbert in, in, uh, in Liverpool many, many years ago, 1962, I think that was. So I didn't, and... um, yes, I, I didn't really feel it at the time. It was lucky to be playing, I guess, with one or two injuries. Um, but the problem that I had was, was really messing about between the two sports. That was very detrimental to me uh, over that period of time, mm. being stuck between the two sports. And I think uh, for those that uh, don't know, there's a, there's a, another world that might exist where um, Sir Jeff Hurst was a, a first-class cricketer and not perhaps a, a footballer. But um, whether it's business or cricket or, or football, obviously the importance of leadership it can't be understated, no matter what form that comes in. When you were at West Ham, uh, Jeff, and when um, Ron Greenwood first uh, uh, came along, he made obviously some pretty radical changes. Was this a man that genuinely inspired confidence uh, the first time you'd meet him? Absolutely. I mean, he, he was 
simply a, a fantastic uh, coach or teacher, if you like, at the football. And uh, the, the quite always mentioned when we talk about Ron Greenwood, Harry Redknapp, who was played under him and has been very successful as a player and, and the manager over many, many, many years. He and he's come across many coaches, of course, and managers during his time over years, I guess. He would still say that Ron Greenwood is the best coach he had worked with. He'd worked with. So you're very fortunate. I think you, you think you're lucky when you come across if you have a great teacher at school and a great coach, as we had in Ron Greenwood, and of course, a great manager in South Ramsey. So to come across people like that, that calibre, can have a huge influence on your your career, of course, and, and then your life. And that's, that's quite purely the case. Absolutely. And in those early days um, at West Ham, uh, with, with a manager obviously like uh, Ron uh, there, it's also important to have uh, uh, confidence with your other players. And of course, they become your friends. Who did you look at to at the time uh, when to inspire confidence in yourself? Was it more? Was it Peter's? I think probably, well, I was very fortunate to play with the calibre of the players I did. Again, again, extremely fortunate to play with you know, the captain um, of England and West Ham and Martin Peters, who was a fantastic player. And some, as far as Martin's concerned, I think sometimes he didn't quite get the uh, recognition he deserved and what a wonderful player he was. In terms of inspiring confidence, I always probably say that the biggest influence uh, for me, I guess, would be the captain, Bob Noor. Although he was only... Uh, about eight months older than me, he graduated through the system probably three or four years earlier. He played for England in 62, four years before the final when I played. And so he, he was more looked upon him more as a senior player, if you like, not as a, a guy with the same age group as me. And I looked at how he, how he uh, trained, how he acted, how he behaved, and how he played. And so he, he would say, I would also say he was a big influence on me. One thing I would say about leadership, uh, what I do, uh, I do understand clearly in all walks of life, leadership is at the top, is absolutely vital for a, a, for a business, a football team, in any walk of life to be successful. And it's quite evident, I was in the motor trade for a long time as well, selling car warranties to car dealerships, and you could almost tell when you walked into the business, uh, in a, many of the car dealerships, you could almost tell from the moment you walked in by initial reaction people came and welcomed you that the business was well run or conversely not well run at all. And so I understand the, the value and quality of leadership and that's why I'm very fortunate to be involved in my career in those early days with two, two great leaders in, in Ron Greenwood and, and Al Ramsey. Absolutely. And um, since you've already uh, brought him up, uh, Jeff, I think it'd be remiss not to go a little bit further with that, but obviously... Uh, after uh, at West Ham, your uh, playing came to the attention of uh, South Ramsey. Now, there's a man I'm sure when you walked into a room, you knew who was um, in charge. When it came to managing that England team, what was his style like, Jeff? Well, one thing, the first thing I say about South Ramsey, he's probably over my life the most powerful influence who had on me um, as a person. Um, naturally, it happens to an extent because he's got your whole career in his hand. Whether he picks you for England or he doesn't pick you, it can have a great impact on your <laughs> your career and of course your life. But yep. in that era, I was involved for six or seven years. He 
it was quite clear who was the boss. He was quite very, very strict. Probably at a time, maybe overly strict, but at times you probably wouldn't get necessarily get away with it in, in today's football because it's changed dramatically in how you deal with with players then and players now. But he was the most powerful man I came across and very few people. And he, he was quite ruthless in getting people out who he didn't want to be, who didn't want to be part of a group, part of a team. It is important that if you've got a group of people and that's in any walk of life, they're all singing off the same hymn for you. And you don't have anybody that's griping or moaning about the system. And if you've got people like that in the organization, one thing I have learned and I've taken on in my life, my family, you've got somebody in a group that doesn't want to be part of it, you, you get them out. And Alpha, I think, was was quite ruthless of that in his, in his staff. And I think that's one, thing I, one of the most serious ones I think I've learned over a long period of time. And is there, do you think, uh, a, a specific moment, I'm sure there's probably dozens, but is there a specific moment, if you could uh, perhaps pick right now, that did show those uh, qualities in uh, Sir Alf so uh, sharply? Yes, I think for, for me, certainly, um, I think there are instances of players who you thought would, would be in the team, or certainly in the squad, and surprising there were not. There was no necessary reason for it. But looking mm. back, I do think perhaps they were people that Alf didn't think wanted to be part of the group. Um, so that that's that for me. In terms of my personal view, I think that it looked prior to the um, World Cup that I was going to be playing um, in it only a few games before. I was, I was playing. And I played with Jimmy Greaves in the game against Yugoslavia only a couple of months before the final. And it looked at that stage as if I was going to be playing in, in the team. But in a couple of friendly games, more friendly games, before the final in Poland and uh, uh, Norway, I think, and Denmark, mm. I didn't. I played two of the four games. And I probably didn't quite replicate my, my form that I'd been showing at West Ham and in the early couple of games for England. And he, he left me out in the first game of, of the World Cup against uh, Uruguay, he started off with Jimmy Green and Roger Allen. So I, I had an impact of thinking I, at that stage I like I was going to play and didn't start because of just a lack of form. I didn't play quite well enough to justify my position. And somewhat fortuitously, I only got back in the team because of a, a nasty gash to shin um, on Jimmy Green's leg. And I think what you've said there, uh, Jeff, actually does sum that up really well. And more than that, whilst it's important to have that someone in charge with those qualities, it's almost useless if there isn't a strong and unified team behind them. And there really must have been moments, Jeff, maybe there weren't, but uh, let us know in that 66 competition, the prolonged pressure on all of you, you know, the weight of a nation, did it get to you? Oh, not for me personally, no. I, I think, and I don't, uh, not for me, not for a second. I think mm. I was just happy to be, you know, be involved in the squad initially. Uh, not at all. I didn't, you're not aware of the magnitude of the occasion, really, looking back out. Mm. So I never really felt, people talk about pressure a lot and it's there and people, players talk about people talk about it in life. I didn't really feel necessary to feel any great pressure, pressure during the time I was there. And what is also important to say about Alf Ramsey, the people he, he left behind that were left in the squad after he'd moved one or two players out 
the squad were uh, a, a bunch of very hard-nosed, professional, uh, top-quality people. And that was, again, the leadership that I'll show. He, he got people in together that were very, very strong personally. Um, uh, and I think that was part of the success we had. We were very, I always describe our, our group as hard-nosed professionals. Uh, we had some great players, but overall they were great hard-nosed professional players. Um, and great quality people who we've kept in contact with, you know, over the years. And Jeff, I've got to ask, and I'm, I'm not making this up, I've genuinely heard that people do ask you whether or not you realised there were people on the pitch at that moment. I imagine you were busy on something else. Well, I, I did some theatre shows last year. They've gone fairly well, and we're going to do a series of uh, theatre shows. In fact, starting this week over the next uh, two or three months. And uh, at the end of the theatre shows, we have about 20 minutes where we uh, uh, allow the people in the audience to ask questions. And the, the, there's, I won't mention both. They're too long to talk about both questions. Um, one, The other one's a really stupid one. It's too long for me to tell you. It's absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> but the, the, the other ridiculous question I get asked, did I realise there were people on the pitch? And, of course, I jokingly say, yes, I was just about to, to shoot to score the goal. And I looked round, put my foot on the ball, and looked round for a little while and said, oh, dear, there are six or seven people running on the pitch. So that, uh, I've had been asked that once at one of the theatre shows. <laughs> so I joke, make a joke about that and saying, yes, I put my foot on the ball and waited to just have a, look, have a glance round, you know. Maybe it does prove there are things that such as stupid questions, really. Um, oh, yeah, there are. There certainly are. I've got another one which I won't bore you with. It won't be too long to tell you. Uh, I was in a Jersey or Channel Lines, Jersey or Jersey, two or three years ago, and the most stupid, irrelevant questions that absolutely nothing to do with football whatsoever, which uh, was absolutely. But I can use that now because it, it is quite funny. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe another time then. But we. Um, uh, well, you want me, I, I can tell you if you want. You want you got time? I can tell, I tell you if you want. Jeff, go on, go. On. I think I'd be, it would be silly if I said no at this point. Okay, so I was uh, doing a, a, at a dinner in, in the Channel Lines, three or four hundred people, black tie dinner, uh, guest of honour. Mm-hmm. And this occasion, I was speaking for about twenty minutes, then allowing uh, questions from the audience at the end of the evening. And there was usual football questions, and then all of a sudden, I heard a, somebody at the back who who asked a question. I didn't quite hear what he said. He didn't have the microphone with him. So I said, I didn't hear what he said. Can you please give this chap the microphone so I can hear clearly what he said? So the chap had the mic and he said, when a turtle loses its shell, is it naked or is it homeless? Right. <laughs> what, what a question. What a question. Uh, well, I think that would be in, definitely in the stupid category, wouldn't it? So we had a laugh about that. Uh, well, uh, and we, you've got to have a patient of a saint, I think, sometimes to put up with <laughs> well, things no, like that. Just, but then again, I found it amusing. I just found it amusing. In fact, some of the audience found it highly amusing as well. So it did, uh, um, it did make again, laugh if you can put up with my questions, you can probably put up with uh, anything. <laughs> um, but there, there would have become a point, though, um, Jeff, I think um, you were a young man when this happened when you must have realised that people, teammates, began looking at you for leadership. Um, is that something that occurred to you or did you just realise that by, by one way or the other, 
people actually begin to look up for you for inspiration? Well, possibly. That's never really struck me until you've actually mentioned it now, quite frankly. That's a new, a new question. Mm. Does anybody look up to me? I'm sure perhaps uh, there are. There are people who pay you compliments of, of uh, fans of, of West Ham and uh, of Stoke. And of course, in, uh, England fans who, um, I, I think probably yeah, it would be very immodest of me to to suggest that I, I felt that somebody was looking to me for inspiration. Um, you, but, you don't but, have to, but I will. Uh, well, um, it's, it's, it's okay for a third party to do it. Uh, perhaps, um, perhaps that may have been the case over the years. Uh, people look at you and um, uh, maybe. Uh, it has a uh, helpful effect, uh, but I do think you, you, how you behave and set examples on and off the pitch, is people must realise that that's, that has an influence. How you react and behave mm. to, to situations on and off the field surely probably has an impact to younger players coming in into the team laterally. Um, yeah, and and with that, looking at. Um, uh, Football today, uh, is there anybody that you think particularly on the field or the sidelines that strikes you as someone with um, those qualities that you could identify in a in a natural leader? Um, well, a, a player, current players, you mean? Oh, players, managers, anybody that uh, you look to today, really? Well, I think some of the outstanding. I think the, the, the best example about a, a leader and at the moment is. Is, is uh, Klopp at Liverpool? Mm. He has been absolutely fantastic to uh, acquire the players and get them to their attitude. Is absolutely fantastic. They're great players, but there's more than just being good players in football. It's have a good player with a fantastic attitude and their willingness to work for each other and the team is absolutely outstanding. Hence, these unbelievable results. There are, you know. And the great players not always succeed as, as individuals or probably even uh, certainly as a team if you haven't got the right attitude alongside it. And they're probably, and that, that comes through the leadership. That's not just luck. Absolutely. That's, that's absolute leadership. He'd be the best example, of course, in, in football terms today. Uh, easily, easily. And of course, but going back not that long ago, Alex Ferguson, who's just absolutely... Mm. You've got to take him as the first example because Klopp's only done this over a period of time, you know, a short period of time. But if you look at the 25, 26, 27 years that Alex Ferguson did with Manchester United, and subsequently since he's gone, how they they are not doing so well. He's the best example of management I've seen. We've seen we've probably ever seen, and I don't think anybody will see the light of that kind of leadership again. It's ast- absolutely. Astonishing, astonishing. And do you think, could you imagine uh, Sir Alf or even Ron Greenwood managing teams today? Yes, I think so. I think, yes, no, mm. no question at all. I think they, uh, Ron Greenwood, yeah, well, the, the answer is straightforward. answer is yes. Um, That's a good they, answer. <laughs> the straightforward answer is yes. I can elaborate as much as you want, but the straight answer is absolutely categorically yes. Uh, and with, um, and I know uh, if we could talk about this probably for the next hour or so, but um, I'm conscious of the um, time. Um, looking um, back 
through your um, playing career, perhaps especially um, your time uh, for England. Who was it uh, that struck you more than anyone else on the pitch uh, that displayed qualities of not just leadership, but uh, companionship and and level-headedness that you think that have stuck with you all these years later? Well, I think we were, I was very fortunate and I wouldn't pick any one player out. I think looking at so that, many. Yeah, so many, and that's why we were successful because we had so many um, showing all those qualities that you just mentioned uh, throughout the team. I think that that was outstanding and, uh, uh, and it's an opportunity to talk about uh, all of them in, in that breath. And there was nobody, and I've been going back from an earlier earlier question for me, that um, all hard-nosed professionals, good good teammates, mm. good socially, and that's why we kept in touch with each other on our golf days every year, uh, up until about five years ago, of course, with, with the sadly dwindling yes. numbers. We, we still got on, our wives got on all together all those years later. It didn't just finish after 66. That reunion, that camaraderie, that team spirit, mm. um, getting on with each other lasted for, for a long, long, long time. And I wouldn't and when it, when you put those those questions and how you categorise those, I would pick every one of the eleven players um, who you put in that category that were like that. There was nobody else; they were all outstanding. And I think that was a big part. I can't stress how big a part that was. And I've said that many, many times for the success of the team. We have some great players. We have some great players, of course. But without the attitude alongside that, going back to an earlier question, we wouldn't have been as ultimately ultimately as successful. Exactly. Without that, the 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 whole will never be greater than the sum of its parts. But with it, yes, the word the word is the word is the word is team. Absolutely. And I always use the word team when I talk. Sometimes uh, together, everyone achieves more. And that, that's the same in any walk of life. That, that's fundamental. And uh, lastly, uh, Jeff, looking, if, if you were to uh, give advice, and whether this is in sport or business or indeed any other walk of life, what would you identify, if you can, as the key tenant uh, that you can't go without in terms of leading a team, no matter what that team is? Single mind and single mind and dedication dedication to the job um, thinking about that 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 role that job in leadership all the time it's a huge part of your life if you, I don't think you can switch off when you're in, in business at the top level or sport at the top level you may you know have a, have a couple of weeks holiday but I'm even sure if, if these top managers and lead, leaders in all walks of life are away on holiday on a beach somewhere warm I'm sure there's not uh, they will not switch off for, for two weeks um, and completely uh, not think about their role as the boss of an organisation. And I think that's, you're completely focused. You're always thinking about uh, things, thinking about improvements. And it's just dedication and uh, uh, tuning your life to being successful. Excellent. Well, Jeff, on that point, thank you very much for joining us today. You're welcome. Very good to nice to have a talk about this and just go over the over the past and just uh, refresh my mem- my own memory about the quality of the players I grew up with. Excellent. Uh, another time, uh, it would be great to talk again. Thank, thank you, Jonathan. Thank you. 
This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I have been your host, Matthew O'Neill. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, other guests, or any other person therein associated.